Hello, and welcome to Fortune's Wheelhouse, a podcast about esoterics and the tarot. I'm Susie Chang, and my co-host is Mel Moline. The first 78 episodes of Fortune's Wheelhouse offer a card-by-card breakdown of occult correspondences and symbolism in the tarot, and if you're a new listener, you may want to start there. In this season, we've been examining each correspondence system on its own. We've looked at the seven traditional planets, the numbers 1 through 10, the 12 signs of the zodiac, and now we're concluding with the four elements, fire, water, air, and earth, as they appear in Esoteric Tarot. Remember, if you're diving in at random and one of us says something you just don't get, we have lots of resources on our website to help with some of the more obscure esoteric doctrines we deal in. That website is www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. There are also a couple of other places where you can check in with us online. You can visit Mel at tabulamundi.com and you can visit me at tsusanchang.com. If you'd like to make contact over social media, you can also join over 900 smart, nice, like-minded friends at the Fortune's Wheelhouse Academy group on Facebook, which is free to all to join. As you know, each episode, we have a giveaway. Last time, our prize was a copy of my own new book on the minors, which is called 36 Secrets, A Decanic Journey Through the Minor Arcana of the Tarot. And our winner was Eileen in Ohio. Congratulations, Eileen. If you're not Eileen and you'd like your own copy of 36 Secrets, you can find it at a variety of online booksellers. It's the same price everywhere, but as an author, I do much better if you order from the Lulu Bookshop at lulu.com slash products. Thanks for doing that. In this episode, we're talking about the element of water, and we are offering our winner a copy of Mel's Pharaoh's Tarot. This is particularly apt because Pharos, as Mel puts it, is a voyage of light upon the waters. It's about the Pharos lighthouse at Alexandria. And it explores the Golden Dawn color scales that we all know and love through the medium of watercolor. If you just can't wait for the drawing for this week's episode, you can, of course, order your own copy of Pharos Tarot through Mel's shop, www.tarotcart.com. As always, all Fortune's Wheelhouse patrons are automatically entered in the drawing. If you're not a patron and you would like to be, you can sign up at www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. One final note, if you enjoy the material we're releasing in this elemental series, you may be interested in my downloadable presentation called Four Stories of Tarot which you can find on my website at www.tsusanchang.com slash shop. This is a two-hour deep dive into the stories of fire, water, air, and earth as told through mythic archetypes and the tarot. I first presented it at the Northwest Tarot Symposium last year, and if you were unable to attend that, this is a way you can still enjoy the content I created for that event. And now, here's this week's episode.
Hi, everybody. We are back, and we are here to talk today about the element of water as it appears in esoteric tarot. So that means that we'll be talking about, first of all, the major arcanum of elemental water, which is the hanged man, as I'm sure you all know. And then we'll be talking about the three watery zodiacal majors, which are the chariot, death, and the moon. I suppose we could also uh, consider the high priestess a watery major because she's associated yeah, with the, the moon. Yeah, the moon is very much associated with water. Mm-hmm. Not the and, moon card, but the moon moon right. priestess. Yeah. <laughs> to everyone's everlasting consternation. And <laughs> <laughs> then we'll be talking about the entire suit of cups uh, associated with water and the rank of queens, which are watery, as everyone agrees. Yeah, so the elemental qualities of water, according to Western philosophy, generally Literally are the opposite of the, the of fire. <laughs> exactly. Where fire was hot and dry, water is wet and cold, which comes as a surprise to no one. <laughs> <laughs> Water's wet, everybody. Stop the presses. One thing that's cool, mm-hmm. the, there, I read somewhere, I think this was Aristotle. I wish I had written it down. But, you know, in addition to hot and dry... There were two other kind of qualities assigned. Fire mm-hmm. was rare and acute, and I think rare meaning rarefied, you know. Yes, than... I've seen that as subtle versus dense. Yeah. 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 yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And, and then water was dense and obtuse. Yes, exactly. Dense yeah. and obtuse. <laughs> I really like that. Insulting. But... It sounds very insulting. <laughs> Don't take it personally, water signs. But anyway, so yeah, wet and cold. Dignity-wise, it has that modal polarity that it shares with Earth, the downward-pointing glyph. It's heavy. It sinks towards the Earth. And therefore, you know, water and Earth are considered to be the most fertile. You know, they produce, together they produce all things that live come from water and Earth. It's interesting, though, like fire is also considered a source of creation, but, but water literally is the life source, also a source of creation. And I think it's just because both fire and water are primal or primordial elements. They both have to do with this, the source of they creation. Do. You know, they're, they're kind of like of the four, they're the supernals. And uh, water shares wetness with air, as we know, so they're neutral in other ways. But, um, but, but in terms of that force of creation, it's interesting to think of the power of water as being to dare as opposed to fire being to will. So they are different forms of creation, really. You know, sometimes you can think of the universe as running on desire, you know, on, on connection. And that's interesting because it's almost sort of like using the concepts of archetypal male and female as creator forces to will right. and to dare. This desire desire is, seems to me like more of a fiery thing. Mm. But then there's desire and there's being receptive to receiving what you desire, which mm-hmm. is th- that receptive quality. Daring could be, you know, being willing to receive. Yes, yes, yes. Opening up to reception. Right. In a way, yeah. it's like letting go and being open to receive. Absolutely. Which is also a necessary part. That's right. I mean, the stories of water, I find, are always stories of sacrifice and surrender, which means that there's something you're surrendering to. <laughs> 
you know. Right, that's the letting go part, you know. It's what the letting go. It's is the, the penetrative quality of fire and then the receptive quality of water receiving that which, you know, is coming. Right, and that they are counterparts to one another, right, at some Yeah, level. that's the whole form and force polarity, you know. Right. The force right. of fire and the form, the receptivity of form. Remember at the end of Promethea, Alan Moore's Promethea, they have sort of like uh, a metaphor for the for the end times where they kind of use <laughs> the swizzle stick in the martini yeah. glass, <laughs> you yeah. know, as primal fire and primal water. And yeah. that's that's it. <laughs> that's one of my favorites. That's a good one. Quote unquote wand and quote unquote cup. <laughs> yes. I want a t-shirt with that on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you could get one. We're talking about the hanged man and what could be more submissive and more receptive than the hanged man, right? You know, right. as opposed to judgment, fiery judgment or eon, we're literally um, bound to the tree. Yeah, yeah. And submitting to that larger story of what it is that you gain by submitting. And with water, it's always interesting because we talk about water as being emotions and feelings, but there's something truly spiritual about it, you know, in terms of... Oh, it's definitely the most devotional of the elements. I mean, fire has some devotional qualities too, but I think water especially, I, I consider it being, you know, the, the mystics and the spiritualists and the devotional people and the scryers and, you know, those who submit to the imagination. Exactly. That willingness to take that creative fire or to receive that creative fire and lose yourself to it, you know, mm. to sort of be transported and brought into ecstasy with it. Because for every creative act, there has to be someone who receives it or else it's not done. <laughs> you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. So that, I think, is the lesson of the hanged man at some level, that when we still ourselves to receive, to listen, to let the ego fall silent, then we come into contact with the divine radiance. Yeah, it's definitely a way. A, a- story about faith and transcendence. Yes. The hanged man. Yes. I often think of those cancer cards, the cards of the crab is how to meet desire, how to um how to recognize that there's an other. Whereas the stories of Scorpio are the literal sort of alchemical transformation, the surrender at the heart of the story, the deal that you strike to receive that otherworldly magic. And then the the stories of Pisces are about how to rise in an altered state, you know, the, the other side of the equation, what you get when you have gone through that resurrection. symbolic death. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, Birth, uh, death, and resurrection, you could say, for those three cards. The um, crab, scorpion, and fish, of course, are the constellations of Cancer and Scorpio and Pisces. And it's interesting because crab and fish, of course, are self-evidently watery, right? But mm. the scorpion... But, but also the scorpion, the death card also has the, the three forms. So it also has the, um, yes. the eagle and the, and the fish and the serpent all in, in there too. 
Uh, I thought it was the eagle, the phoenix, and the scorpion. But there's also noon there's a fish. The fish. Form. Oh, the noon, noon the fish. Yes. Okay. And also the scorpion carries its venom within. That's what it's known for, that sort of either um, fatal or life-giving medicine. Of Ride the, or die. Ride or die. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting that Ride the scorpion... Right, and I. That whole um, metaphor of the uh, giving the scorpion a ride. Yes, over the stream, and then, yes. you know, it stings its carrier, and because yes. it cannot help it do so, yes. it is in its nature. But a scorpion, a scorpion is, um, you know, a, a desert-dwelling creature um, in, in life, but the thing we most associate with it is the fluid it carries within, which is interesting. Yeah, that is. It's interesting, too, that both fire and water are associated with forms of like purification, you mm-hmm. know? So there's the yes. purification by fire, but then there's the cleansing and, and, and baptismal aspect of water. That's right. I was thinking about that because of reading the Iliad and kind of looking closer at the rituals of sacrifice in there. And there's always something burning because you have to have something burning and some animal fats. But there's also the lustral side of it where, you know, in order to purify yourself, you have to wash yourself and then you throw the waters away, you know, because Mm. the waters are contaminated with your human impurities. And water has that power, as we see with holy water and with the baptismal font. Water yeah. also has the quality of being mirror-like, which, you know, reflective, and which kind of brings in the moon, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the moon itself is like a mirror. And and its relationship and with the waters. in every way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And its relationship with the waters of the earth, mm-hmm. the tides that rise and fall. Well, if we if we think about the chariot, you know, there is always a a quest quality to it in terms of that initiation of this whole process of sacrifice and surrender. You know, we often equate, as people will remember from the chariot episode, the chariot with the grail knight. Right, the the bearer of the grail, yeah. Right, giant cup (laughs) bearing holy blood. There's also the larger story of the grail knight in the sense that he has to be the one who submits to the principles of knighthood. The perfect knight is not the one who's the bloodiest or the most active or the most murderous, but the one who is the most divinely connected. Chivalrous. Chivalrous, yes, right? exactly. Connected with purity. Which, you know, sounds kind of insufferable too, but <laughs> but this is an archetype in which the knight is defined by a virtue of being close to the divine of sitting vigil for a divine mission. Purity is an important concept when it comes to the element of water. You know, mm-hmm. there's clear water and there's muddy water. There's, there's, you know what I mean? There's toxic yeah. waters and, and pure waters and, and they both have their points in the cycles. You can look at some of the cups cards and see where the water's kind of been muddied or, mm-hmm. and where it's clear, <laughs> you know, and it's the, the chariot's job to, bring it safely from one end to the other. Whereas, you know, in in the card of death, it's not protective in the way that the chariot card is. The waters of death serve to move things along, <laughs> you know, to get from one place right, to another. 
Yeah, and we're dun, reminded dun, dun. that there's, you know, water and river symbolism in the death cards because the water goes one way. Yeah, it's right. fixed fixed water. It it moves but in one direction. Towards um, the inevitable. Towards the inevitable. <laughs> the inevitable death, but also the inevitable birth that follows yeah. afterwards. The waters in the moon card are waters of the unconscious, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of like those places from which strange forms arise, the crayfishes of the mind and the fears that it contends with when we're asleep or in an altered state. Right. What's in the depths? Yeah. The usually unseen things. You know, there's a real threshold that the, the death card represents between one reality and the next. And the moon definitely is the other side of that. Yeah journey which is interesting too because the crab is a is a is an edge dweller right you know it's it's partly land partly sea always at the edge of the tides the scorpion lives on land but the fish is literally all water you know it's just mm. dissolved into the great unconscious it is right it cannot live outside of the water <laughs> right right there's the story of somebody was just telling me this the other day i can't remember who um the young fish asking the older fish please tell me where the ocean is and the older fish is like well you're in the ocean and the younger fish is like oh no this is just water <laughs> right so there's no separation <laughs> is the point yeah. of that story well, one one other thing just to mention really briefly are the, the three mottos of the chariot, death, and the moon. So oh, I yes. feel, I desire, and I believe. Mm. Yes, it's almost sort of like... Um, a it is tracing... like a letting go, you know? I, I feel this, mm -hmm. I desire it, but I just have faith, I believe, that it's going to manifest somehow. Yeah, it is the sort of narrative arc of intuition that you trace there. Um, mm. from feeling to belief. There's something in there that I often think about with water versus air, that they depend on each other in the sense that faith and doubt you depend on each other. You mean fire or air? No, air, actually. Okay. Um, that, you know, I think of air as representing doubt and water as representing faith in some ways. Oh, and, definitely. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like they have this sort of, water and air have this interesting relationship where sometimes... They are, um, you know, there's mind and emotion are intertwined and sometimes confused with each other. So, you know, even in, in Kabbalah, very often water is talked about as if it's the mind rather than the heart. So anyway, it's just something that's those two. It, it makes sense to me that they're proximal in the, in the four world model, water and it's, air. It's also interesting to, you know, contrast with fire in the sense that they're both kind of inspirational. Fire is that, that spark of inspiration, but water is kind of the uh, imaginal part of inspiration. And there's kind of like a, a dreaming versus a doing quality to it, where fire Absolutely. is definitely more like that quick spark and flash of inspiration. Whereas yeah. the, there's a more like dreamy thing going on in the water realm. For sure. I mean, it's sort of like in fire, the vision springs whole, you know, to the mind. Yeah. Whereas in, in water, you sort of let yourself ask, what if? Floating around in the astral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What if, it, you know, see what there is and, and um, be open to whatever forms arise. Whatever comes, yeah. Literally forms, yeah. And that's why water is considered so psychic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's impressionable. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I when, think of like air as being telepathic, water as being psychic, and fire as being prophetic, you know, as oh, far as the psychic gifts go. Yeah, that is great. Yes, that reminds water me. Water is also kind of mediumistic, too. Mm hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. that, I'm not sure that's water and earth, maybe both. Mm. Well, there are forms of divination for every element, of course, but they do have different characters. Interesting. Seems like most people I know with medium mystic gifts are very watery. They're watery, for yeah. sure. For sure. It's, a, it's the ability of water to take an impression, not yes. to have a form of its own. That is fascinating to think about. So the Ace of Cups in particular, you know, we think of that sometimes as the Holy Grail. And I'm sure we talked about that in the Ace of Cups episode. The big yoni in the sky. <laughs> Cosmic yoni. Yeah. (laughs) It has similarly radiant qualities, limitless qualities to the Ace of Wands in a way. You can see on the Thoth the sort of waves radiating out from it like ripples in a pond. It's like a scrying cup. Mm -hmm. And the droplets coming off of the Rider Waite Ace of Cups with its mysterious upside down M that looks like a W or W that looks like an upside down M meaning who knows, you know, it could be, it could stand for Mem. It could stand for uh, Mary who is often considered the feminine principle of the divine. And of course the right away symbolism has that dove descending. So the receiving of grace. And the glyph of water, that. that squiggle actually looks like an M, mm-hmm. you know, in, in hieroglyphs yeah. or even in the, even though it's not a water sign, it's it stands mm-hmm. for water, the Aquarius symbol. Right, that kind right. Of, we we talk about that wave, the that wave form, conflation of water and W. It's a it's a wave form. Yes, absolutely. And the two through ten minors, we're talking about the Cancer or Chariot ones are the two, three, and four of cups: love, abundance, and luxury. Uh, the five, six, and seven of cups, those of Scorpio or death, are disappointment, pleasure, and debauch. And the eight, nine, and ten of cups associated with Pisces or the moon are indolence, happiness, and satiety. But if you kind of go from the beginning of the beginning to the middle of the middle to the end of the end, that takes you from love to pleasure to satiety, which... Oh, that, geez, that sounds you know, like That something. sounds all right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds suggestive. right so anybody who tells you that you know water isn't sexual (laughs) is out of their mind it totally is um that's interesting because you know mm -hmm. we've mentioned already that water and the moon are intimately connected both on earth and in you know esoterically and in uh vedic astrology i read this myth and it said uh, that if you want sexual satisfaction you should worship the moon ah i see that's interesting fascinating so there you have it (laughs) yes yes there you have it so the two three and four of cups in particular you know for starting with them as chariot miners they do seem to have that questing quality um that feeling of restlessness, you know, that goes with Mm. the first pangs of falling in love or of seeking something that's greater than yourself, that desire for something larger, which I think is very much the story of water, the desire to be part of something that is greater than yourself, a larger purpose. So the two, three, and four, you know, we see the, the two clearly shows 
that first gaze. Desire for connection in all of the water. Desire for connection, yeah. yeah. And then with the three, the sort of quickening of that desire and the four, we often use the birth metaphors with the trimester metaphors with the two, three, four, you know, when it's time to move on, it's either the four could be the call to adventure or also it's refusal. So, um, but they are all aspects of that desire to seek. Uh, And then the five, six, and seven, you know, that it's interesting because you have these two very uneasy kind of, you know, flanking cards around the beautiful card of pleasure And I think that that really speaks to the fact that the pleasure is itself uh, dependent on the pain of sacrifice in some level. There's always a a giving up of the self, which we can think of that as being seen in the five of cups, and then becoming something completely different in the seven of cups. You know, there's a, a fermentation there, an alchemical change. So... You know, so, There's also a question of balance, mm-hmm. too, because, you you know, the six is really that Goldilocks card where everything's just right. Right. You know, the right amount of water, whereas in the five, it's dry and in the seven, it's wet, you know, too wet. Yes. You could think of it that way. You and could it's think of it that like way. This cycle of tides, the high tide and low tide and then the beautiful, perfect tide when you can go for a dip. <laughs> I mean, the, the, there's a martial hunger in the five and then a sort of solar consummation, you could say, in, in the six. Yeah. And then the, um, Venusian sort of afterglow or, or there's also, you know, the postcoital moment that is exhausted and depleted, you know, that I think is also in, in the seven of cups has happened. Like the, a bit of the, quality of of toxicity in in that mm-hmm. card where there's just a bit too much fertility in the water you know yes absolutely the sort of kind of like the swamp water it's very fertile but you wouldn't right. want to drink it right and you know after that sort of conjunction in the six something has to happen right you know something everything needs to pause for the next phase to go on whether it is you know conception or fertilization or for the uh ripe fruit if it's not eaten to turn into something else right whatever that may be and then in the eight nine and ten this is where the new forms begin to arise you know, whatever they may be, the imaginative forms that were kind of called forth in the Cancer and Scorpio, the Chariot and Death cards, those new possible realities begin to emerge in the Moon card, whatever they may be. And that- in the 8, 9, and 10, you see how that perfect holy grail moment can be achieved in the 9, or mm-hmm. it can be abandoned in the 8, or perhaps overindulged in the 10. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. You know, I mean, I often think with the Eight of Cups that there's flood imagery in it. There's sort of like the destructive power of water to erase whatever came before. But then, you know, the nine is like, you know, casting your net into the sea and finding the thing that you you long for. The wish-giving fish. (laughs) Fishes and wishes, exactly. But yeah, that final moment in the 10 is when you realize that it's all kind of an illusion anyway, (laughs) you know? Is that all there is? Is that all there (laughs) is? Yeah. You have to wake up from the dream at some point, I think is the lesson of the moon card or the final stage of the moon card. 
the moon is the home to both nightmares and dreams too, you know, all of them being equally real and equally unreal, which is fascinating to think about. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the constellations constellations of the decans of the water signs. So the, um, the constellations associated with cancer's three decans are the Argo Navis, Mm -hmm. which is the ship of the Argo. And then there's, Puppis or pupus, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, the stern. And then there's parts of Ursa Minor and Major. So the part of Ursa Minor is the neck of the bear and the part of Ursa Major is the flank of the bear, which I I find the the Argo and the uh, the stern really good metaphors for the water journey, you know, the the, the ship and the stern. (laughs) And then in Scorpio, the, the Deccan constellations are lupus, which is the wolf, sometimes also called the sacrifice, which I thought was interesting. Um, Hercules is there and Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer, which I thought was pretty cool too. Um, mm-hmm. although part of Ophiuchus, Ophiuchus is in Sagittarius as well, but, um, in Pisces, then you have the square of Pegasus, which would be the, the body of the, the flying horse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mm-hmm. Cepheus, the crown king, and then it, Andromeda, which is shared with the next sign, Aries, as well. So the Andromeda myth is interesting because it does have that kind of hero fire thing with Perseus rescuing her, but it's also very watery with the princess being chained to a rock about to be eaten by Cetus, the sea monster, and all that. Absolutely. In the watery part of the sky as well. Yes, the great sea of the sky. The great sea of the sky, yeah. And then I suppose we should talk about you know, the watery part of an element as expressed in the queens of tarot. Yeah, so the the wateriest queen would be, of course, the queen of cups because she is water of water. (laughs) Yes, she is the the psychic, the counselor. Psychic mirror, the reflective. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I did this um, seminar for for this group of Jungians back in March. And the day of that, I got literally everybody in the audience was a therapist and I got the queen of cups (laughs) and the page of swords. (laughs) So it was interesting, you know, um, and I'm sure they all do a lot of mirroring. Oh yeah. And they are so gifted at tarot. I mean, a lot of them had never picked up a deck of cards before, but you know, instantly, instantly got it, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's, tarot you don't have to you don't have to work at it necessarily for years in general have a high proportion of water signs i bet they Mm. do i bet they do yeah you would think you'd have to have a lot of qualities like empathy and you know absolutely which i consider kind of a watery trait absolutely the ability to feel what other people are feeling literally that's what empathy is and you know whether you want to or not which is I think also why the sort of lunacy, the insanity of the moon is a watery quality too, because you can't mm. separate. There's no boundary between you and the emotions of others or spirit or the spirit world for that matter. And that's where that comes from. But in general, watery, the watery part of any suit is going to have that reflective quality about it, that erasure of the difference between you and me, you know, mm. I think we see that in the sort of internally reflecting qualities of the of the Queen of Wands, but also her the way she draws other people to her. And in the Queen of Swords, there's a you know, an ability to work with the patterns of 
the intellect, um, you know, the reflect the intellect and to reflect back on it, like as in the editing process. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, in the queen of discs or pentacles, you know, there's that ability to shape, um, shape earth, shape matter into forms. Yeah. And it's also cardinal too, which is, which is a funny way to think about it, isn't it? You know? Yeah. We think of cardinal as not being receptive at all, but nothing can start unless, <laughs> you know, unless you receive as well as transmit. Yeah. I mean, I think cardinal... Uh, you can think of cardinal... As like giving water, birth. You know, think about can- the sign of cancer. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. cardinal water. It's very watery. It's receptive in that sense. They're They're very receptive people, but they're also have the ability to control a situation or try to mm. like As, to be a matriarch of the family is to have some degree of yes. control for sure you know yes absolutely and to kind of set the design of the family in yeah. some way but uh, but also the fact that that process of receiving begins with receiving with the act of creating a human being but the process of designing it as y- the human lives in your body for nine months, and then the act of beginning its life by giving birth to it. So cardinality is inherent in that, I think. So oh, we, should we yeah. briefly go through the other cups, courts? Yes, yes. So Knight, prince, and princess. or Knight or king, queen, uh, pager, uh, prince or knight, and page or princess. Yeah. So... Yeah, so Knight of Cups, the fiery part of water. Um, He's that Holy Grail Knight, you know, on his on his spiritual quest or pursuit. You know, we see him as active, but we can also see him as sitting as the King of Cups in Rider Waite Smith, the the leader to whom you go for (laughs) for for spiritual advice. The guru sitting on the The mountain. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then the queen we've talked about a little bit, you know, with her psychic qualities and her ability to um, do emotional outreach. Um, and then we have, mm, fascinating, the prince. Or the the prince. Yeah, prince or knight right of cups. Yeah, he who is the... He's a slippery character. Yeah, the artist of the floating world, the creator of lies that are truthful, the fabulist and the storyteller. Yeah, the speaking of the emotion, the air of air of water. Right. The the one who drives the Queen of Swords absolutely batty. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but there's an I think an attraction between them as well. Air of water and water of air. I often think of him as a master of metaphor, things that are not literally true, but true at a deeper level. And then there's the the earthy part of water. The princess. page of page or princess yep. of cups, right? Who I I often think of as being the dreamer of the batch because you know mm. you need the dreaming body in order to receive the dream. You know her body, mm-hmm. the earthen part of her, is crucial to that. Um, as a you know, as opposed to water of water, where the feelings are kind of boundless. The the earthy part of water is grounded at some level. Um, oh, for sure, and. I found that in practice that the page of cups has a real connection to the dead. And I don't, you know, I never expected that, but it kind of makes sense given her sort Mm. of scorpionic center. 
scorpionic well, that heart. definitely would fit in with the media mystic qualities, earth, you know, the thonic and, and the, yes. the psychism yes. of water. Right, right. So whereas I think of the queen as being able to kind of outreach to anybody in the present world, you know, or just having that skill of psychism, there's something about the earthy part of water, the page or princess of cups that reaches beyond the boundaries that we normally respect. And I haven't totally figured out what, but I, I know it's there. <laughs> I've, I've lived seen it. her come up as a, like a muse figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. An inspi- Absolutely. An inspiration to the artistic process somehow. Um, and the fact that she, in writer Wade Smith, she's the one who's, there's a difference between her, her and the Queen of Cups in that the Queen of Cups is looking at a closed cup and the Page of Cups is looking at that fish, you know, and yeah. talking to this this fish that no one else can hear. I don't know. There's something deeply imaginative about that, which I really quite love. All right. Should we talk some Kabbalah? Okay. The, um, <laughs> so we've, we're talking about the the world of Bria, which is the creative world. Um, which, which makes sense. Yes. Sometimes Bria is called something from nothingness. Uh, the mm, idea. Where absolute would be the nothingness. Exactly. Exactly. And Bria is where something begins to happen. And in Lon Milo Duquette's model, here we have the inventor who receives the inspiration, the idea of rest from the uh, archetypal wor- world. Is it archetypal for Atsilut? I think it is. But here we have the idea of the thing, um, not the blueprint, that's in Yetzira, but the idea of Right, not a chair. how to build it, just that <laughs> right. it can exist. That it could exist. It's as if we've never sat down before. <laughs> now we have the idea of sitting down as a form of rest. This is where that light bulb goes off. You know, in Yetzira, we have a great deal of differentiation, the specifics of things. But here we have almost the platonic form. Yeah. You know, the ideal, what we think of when we think of chair. More amorphous. Because yeah. a chair could be... Uh, you know, a padded thing or a wooden thing or any number of shapes or, you know, yeah, sizes. Yeah, it could, it could be, it a, could be a rock stool, you sit on. <laughs> could be a, it could be a meditation cushion or a bar stool, you know. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that is part that... doesn't come into the, the Yetzira where you design it. Right, and the thing is that even though the specific chair is the one that we're actually going to deal with. We all know what we mean when we say chair. And why is that? Because of the world of creation, because we all can hold that ideal form without necessarily fleshing it out. So letter wise, couple things. We, I think we did tetragrammaton first last time. So we'll do it again. This is primal hay. Primal hay is the great mother. Right, the great mother, sometimes translated as window, but I I understand that that comes from the concept of beholding or to look. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. You look through a window. Exactly. I've also heard that the three sort of parts of letter hay, the cross piece and the sort of two Mm -hmm. uprights, uh, are thought, speech, and action, which are considered the the three-headed Cerberus um, of Crowley's, um, which one is it? You know what I'm talking about. We've gone over it before. So in, in the, the Cerberus figure in the Hermit card with yeah. its three heads yeah. are related to those concepts. Mm-hmm. Which but are also, called... if you look at the letter hay with the two sides, and the, it looks like a door or a portal, kind of. 
Right. It absolutely does. It's uh, the thought, speech and action are considered garments of the soul in Judaism. But I think the important, the most important part of hay is the fact that there's a gap between uh, the up, the left upright and the, you know, and the higher one uh, and the cross piece, because if it were closed, right. then it would be letter ket. And that is sometimes correlated with breath, with the divine grace that allows you, you know, to intake a breath that hay represents as a letter. You know, it is an inhalation. It is a breathing point. And it is receptive, of course, right? You know, as both primal and final hay, feminine in that way, which is another way of reading the gap in there. But the other letter, when we also have to consider not just the tetragrammaton, Mem. but yeah, the elemental letter, which is mem, which is water itself. You know, it is the only letter whose meaning literally matches with the element. <laughs> I always consider the letter mem too as with having an association to the ohm, the great ohm sound of that. That makes sense. Yeah. Is both silence and all sounds you know, contains all is the, it's the seed of all mm -hmm. and the sound of, it's the sound of both everything in silence at once. It seems very water-like. Yes. And the sound of the letter M is always associated with the mother everywhere. Mama. Right. And <laughs> First word every baby says just about. It's that hungry opening and closing of the mouth, you know, to, to feed and receive sustenance. In Judaism, the idea of water is also kind of correlated with the Torah itself, the wisdom of the divine, because it's said to be unaltered from where it pours at the top to the bottom, like a waterfall, water always on the move, but remains, it's still the same water from top to bottom. And when we receive it, it's received unaltered. So, you know, there's a mystery to Mem. Um, right. It's the same water no matter what vessel or shape of vessel it's poured into. It takes on the shape. Exactly. So in terms of the four worlds also, we mentioned in the last episode that colors are the colors of Bria for the ten sephirot. Um, the colors of Atsilut are used for the paths between the 22 paths between the 10 of Sephirot. But we combine Atzilut and Bria colors to form a whole in the model of the tree of life. So maybe we yeah, should and if talk. If you look at the colors yeah. of the uh, ace through 10 or mm -hmm. the Sephiroth mm -hmm. for the queen scale, they're really like quite basic, you know, mm -hmm. they're like the basic color you would, you would think of. White, uh, white brilliance for Keter, Keter, and then going down through gray, black for Bina, gray for Hokma, black for Bina, blue for Hezed, scarlet red for Gebora, which is obviously what you'd think of for, yeah. you know, Gevora Mars, you think of red. And then for the sun, Tiferet, yellow, very obvious colors. And then for Venus, green, you know, for the seven, green, Venus. Yep. And for Hode, orange and Isode or the nine violet and for the 10, then we have that fourfold division that um, of citrine, mm -hmm. olive, russet and black in that uh, saltier cross pattern. Right. Which are themselves derived from mixtures of the Sephirot. Above. Mixtures of the four elements. So that's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. So it's, it's like, they're all very obvious. Like 
when mm-hmm. you would think of the, the concept of what they represent here in Malkut for the queen scale, you literally get the four elements that are present here on earth. Yes, you get everything that you would learn as colors in kindergarten. <laughs> right. And even when we go further down this into the briatic colors of the majors, you see sort of those somewhat secondary colors. There's a lot of blended blues and reds and mixed greens and browns kind of a thing. Although they are not quite yet what you would expect to see in the natural world. You know, we get into that more with Yetzira and Asiya. I mean, by natural world, I mean like the world, the earth, as opposed to the sky. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of aquatic sea colors, actually, in the Briatic colors. Yeah, that makes sense. Which makes a lot of sense. You can kind of imagine seeing the ocean in all these different colors. Hmm. Except for maybe the last few. Huh. Shall we talk myths a little bit? Okay. I My favorite one to talk about with the element of water is the one that you reference in your Hanged Man card is the myth of Odin. Right. You know. Hanging on the tree. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Hanging yeah. Out. Yeah. And that, to me, really encapsulates this kind of quest narrative that goes right. uh, and sacrifice. Right. did it for a, a purpose to seek wisdom, to let go of something in order to gain wisdom. Exactly. So in the first part of the myth, you know, he's he's seeking magic. He's seeking something that is beyond what is apparent to his senses, wants to be part of something larger as opposed to the gods, the other gods who are quite happy, you know, just being gods. But Odin always is motivated by wanting to know more, which is why he's a knowledge god as well as a magic god, as well as a war god, because all Norse gods are war gods. <laughs> But, right. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. But he um you know, but he has that he's I think of him often as setting off in the chariot and I often draw an equation between uh the chariot card and Odin and his pairs of beasts, you know, the his pairs of ravens, his pairs of mm. wolves. Yes. That accompany him, uh Munin and Hugin, and I forget the names of the wolves, but they've got names too. Yeah. You know, so he sets forth mastering his appetites in that way, as the same way as the chariot, in order to find um, what he needs to find. And I think there is that that negotiation of appetite in those two, three, and four of cups. In the five, six, and seven, or in the death card, he literally sacrifices himself to himself. Is the mm-hmm. phrase, which is fascinating, isn't it? You know, yeah. what does that even mean to s- sacrifice yourself to yourself? Um, because we're very familiar with the concept of sacrificing to gods, you know, or to others, but to sacrifice yourself to yourself is to want to connect with meaning in a much deeper level, you know, and to, to give up. It's an acknowledgement Mm -hmm. of the divinity within too. Yeah. Yeah. That you you know, our own personal Mm -hmm. sovereignty or divinity. The exterior world whose rules we live by all the time is only part of the equation. And I think that, you know, the sacrifice of yourself to yourself is what the Jungians call turning a friendly face to the unconscious, recognizing that there's a part of you that is unknown to you and that you can only thrive on it by being open to it, even though you cannot know it entirely. And I think that's Odin hanging on the tree. Also makes me think of the phrase, there is no God but man. 
And the part of the myth where, you know, what do you sacrifice? Well, Odin sacrifices his eye, which is a metaphor of knowing mm. and seeing, you know, and right. he gave up half of his sight or knowledge in order right. for more <laughs> realizing that that was not the whole story. You know, or in is, a sense, you could say he was looking for a different way to see. Yes. He was yes. giving up one form of sight for another, for a new perspective. Was it his right eye or his left eye? Do you remember? Ah, it was his right, I think. Oh, God. I, that would... He's upside down, so I always get <laughs> Yeah. I can't I mean, tell my right from left when it's upside down. <laughs> I, I totally get that. I totally get that. I'm going to uh, just Google it because we should know this. Yes. Well, okay, means... right eye. Right eye. Yeah, Majority right. of depictions say right eye, which makes sense yeah. because the right eye is the one that's sort of associated with the sun, with the light of ego consciousness, etc. Mm -hmm. And then what he gets afterward, you know, is this this knowledge of the unseen, which seems very much in tune with the moon, you know, right. with right. the magic, literally magic, which the moon is in some traditions, you know, the sponsor of mm -hmm. um, a, a glimpse of the way things really work. So, yeah, I think it's a beautiful myth as far as illustrating that. I also think that the Great Flood myths also work pretty well. For, oh, sure. <laughs> you know, obviously. <laughs> I mean, you could go, there's a lot of, you know, water, water gods. I mean, we've got the Titans, Oceanus, the, the salt waters of Earth, and his uh, consort, Tethys, the fresh waters of Earth. Mm -hmm. You've got, obviously, Poseidon and Neptune and all their related, uh, related courts. Um, right. Like uh, Amphrite. Amphitrite and the Nereids, yeah. Nereus, the old man of the sea, and the mermaids, and you know Triton, and yeah, all, all, all those uh, sea sea beings. Um, then yeah. you could say the Sumerian Ea or Enki. Even though I always associate Enki with the Capricorn because of the goatfish thing, but Ea and uh, Enki were definitely, along with Oannes, you know, the manfish, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. are definitely, you know, water gods. Then there's the Egyptian Noon, the the primal waters, mm -hmm. um, and Hapi, the god, well, the the hermaphrodite god of the Nile. There's Ocean. Uh, Ocean. Oh, she's yeah. actually a god. Well, there's of she's the god of freshwater rivers, and Jemaya is Jemaya, uh, the ocean. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Then there's yeah. um. Let's see, what other water gods? Well, oh, then there's the obvious, the Undines we haven't talked mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's also uh Atum or Tum, who is if you know and do Liberesh, it's the mm -hmm. god that you are saluting at the time of sunset, which makes sense because, you know, water is associated with the direction of West, right. the setting sun and the realms of right. death, which are located in the West. So right. um, there's definitely right. a uh, quality there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, even though we'll probably talk about Venus as, you know, part of the element of Earth because of, you know, her associations with Earth, Aphrodite is also a sea goddess, you know, born from the foam. Right. Is born her, from the foam. Is her epithet and she is exalted in Pisces as well. So there is definitely a water connection there. Yeah. And, th and that's interesting to me in the sense right. that... Right. And Isis, too, is another god goddess yes. associated yes. with water which makes sense mm -hmm. because she's associated a lot with the priestess and moon card um mm -hmm. and the idea of death as well you know um, yeah 
hunting to piece together her husband, you know, um, who becomes the Lord of Death. Whose junk was eaten by a fish. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. Like Grandpa says of water, he says, there is so great a necessity of water that without it, no living thing can live. Such is the efficacy of this element of water that spiritual regeneration cannot be done without it. So again, that spirit quality in the same way that uh, a Jew might say that you cannot live without Torah. Uh, Infinite are the benefits and diverse are the uses thereof, as being that by virtue of which all things subsist, are generated, nourished, and increased. So all this language of fertility and birth and reproduction goes with water. But it's interesting because it's it's not just with birth, it's death as well, you know, and the, the association of the West going into the West with death in in so many cultures. Right, birth and death, two sides, Isis and Nephthys. <laughs> right, and the sunset, of course, you know, the sun going down to visit the realms of the dead overnight. Right. Um, also, and in Egyptian mythology, the, the mm-hmm. West, the realms of the dead were, were actually like a reed, you know, it was associated mm-hmm. with water, like a mm-hmm. a place where reeds grew. What did they call it? Um, Amenti? There was a name that had to do with the reeds, hmm. but it's, it is Amenti, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a phrase about reeds in there. But anyway, it's, it's a very watery metaphor. The sun is literally sailing on the solar bark through the duat on presumably a river. Right. Um. <laughs> and then there's the river, you know, the river's sticks and the uh, the five rivers of the dead that we talk about in the Scorpio card episodes in the yes. five, six, and seven yes. of cups. Right. And we associate it with uh, also with autumn because it's a northern hemisphere thing. It's the dying off of the growing season, at -hmm. least up here. And then there's the eternal argument over whether it's Gabriel, the archangel, uh, who's associated with the West in the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram or Raphael, the angel of healing, which I've also heard. Folks can infinitely debate that point. (laughs) (laughs) I say, let's not and say we did. <laughs> yes. So um, in terms of natural correspondences, it's it's interesting to see the way the ancients sort of try and think of a a metal that's that's watery. They kind of kind of come down to transparent quick things. Quicksilver, maybe? Quicksilver, yes. And 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 uh, of crystals, it's well, crystal. Anything crystals in general transparent or opalescent right. or pearls right. of course barrels are supposed to be um watery yep. which by um, which aquamarine, i aquamarine which is a form of barrel but especially watery emerald of course color. is also a form of barrel and leaves and on plants as opposed to the seeds or roots or flowers leaves are considered watery and juicy the juicy part and then, of course, every last sea creature <laughs> is watery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the big ones especially, but fishes and shellfish and whales and everything that lives in the sea. And plants uh, that grow in the sea, like the lotus. Seaweeds and lotuses, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the humor associated with water is phlegm, of course, the phlegmatic temperament, which is supposed to be kind of fearful and sluggish. Which is interesting. I, I, I don't. I would never describe my watery friends as being fearful and sluggish, but that is something that someone might perceive on the outside because they're listening so deeply. 
interestingly, the sense associated is smell and taste, um, because without dampness, there is no smell or taste. So you get a twofer with that one. Mm-hmm. You get sight with <laughs> sight with fire and smell and taste with water. Uh, and then there's also all the bodily fluids. I mean, you know, blood, yeah. sweat, and tears. Blood, sweat, and tears. Our, our bodies, yeah. you know, ninety-eight yeah. percent water, or whatever they say. Yeah, we are water. We are water, basically. Yeah, the uh, faculty of imagination, as opposed to you know reason, which is the airy one, and understanding, which is the fiery one, and the senses, which is the earthy one. But imagination, <laughs> as you can well imagine, belongs to water. As far as the uh, powers go for the hanged man card, kind of interesting in that one of the powers is the great work mm-hmm. and one is crystal gazing, which both kind of make sense to me Perfect. For, for water. Yeah. Um, and the other one that's interesting to me is talismans. Mm, which really? I found that, yeah, I found that interesting in the sense that, so that, you know, that story of Odin, didn't mm-hmm. he, one of the things he gained was the knowledge of the runes? Yes. Yeah. And the fact that a talisman is a way of impressing a material, you know, right. leaving a psychic impression on a material to preserve yeah. the quality of the moment. Yep. That makes sense. And mm. then the uh, weapons for that card are obviously the cup, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> the wine and the cross of suffering, all which kind of makes sense. All of which makes sense. Yeah. That's all I got. How about you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got other than for correspondences. I guess if you're going to mention the chakras, that would be the sexual chakra, the second chakra, mm-hmm. um, which kind of makes sense because we talked about the sexual nature of this little, uh, mm-hmm. and the idea of soma, you know, is mm-hmm. really associated with the, the moon and water. Yeah. The nectar of eternal life also, I suppose, ambrosia. Oh, and as far as spiritual practices goes, so in addition to practicing fire yoga, like I talked about a little bit in the fire episode, one of the things that I do for a water spiritual practice is is the art of ritual bathing, mm. you know, where mm-hmm. you uh, you kind of turn your bath into a ritual intended to purify you of anything influences internal or external that don't serve you through different practices like adding certain things to the water like salt or herbs or or beer or um, things like that that cleanse and nourish the the spiritual body yes body absolutely spiritual baths are a really important part of the um, African traditional religions the ATRs as well as in hoodoo uh, part of transforming I'm the a, body. I'm a big fan of baths in general. <laughs> I'm a big bath person. I love baths. I do in principle, but, you know, I can't sit there for more than five minutes without feeling overheated and impatient. So I guess I'm not a bath person. I do love to swim, uh, though. I, <laughs> I love feeling overheated. <laughs> okay, so I think that concludes our journey through water in esoteric tarot thank you for diving deep and swimming the entire distance with us we will be back next time with the element of air see you then and that's our show for today 
You can find us at www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse, where you'll also find new episode announcements and loads of extra articles and visuals, which will help you follow along with the show. If you appreciate what Mel and I have done here at fortunes wheelhouse, please consider leaving us a five-star reviewer rating on iTunes, Apple podcasts, or Google play. And if you'd like to support the making of this podcast and gain access to all the member perks that come with that, please consider becoming a patron at any level you like by visiting www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. You can also explore fortunes wheelhouse gear like t-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs, and more by checking out our red bubble shop. That's it www.redbubble.com slash people slash wheelhouse 93 slash shop. Mel's beautiful books, decks, and prints can be found at tarotcart.com. And my book, Tarot Cases, Astrological Perfumes, and Online Tarot Class can be found at tsusanchang.com. Treat yourself to the tarot gift you've always wanted, because you are a hero of the astral plane, and we so appreciate your support.